Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. ValueHive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V-A-L-U-E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M-A-R-H-E-L-M.com to get your discount today. Keith, I'm doing what seems to be like this reunion tour of old guests that I've had on the podcast. And I had Brian Lax last week, who was almost four years since coming on the podcast. You are right at that three-year mark. And a lot has changed over those three years. I think I've done like over 100 episodes in between then, 100-something plus. And um, you know, you've evolved as an investor, and I've been I've still followed you over the last three years. And we're going to discuss a lot today about commodity picks and shovels investments, and which I think is kind of that sweet spot for a generalist investor that doesn't want the cyclicality and the volatility of the straight commodity bet and wants the quote unquote, you know, better business, but still has exposure to that area. Mm -hmm. But before we dive into that, uh, we were we were chatting off air about uh, just kind of the changes and the evolution that you've that you've done as an investor over the last three years. And so maybe walk us through that process, what you've discovered over that time. Sure. So, I mean, I think the last time we talked, um, Bonhoeffer has evolved over that period of time. And we've, the, the way we look at things fundamentally from a value perspective has remained remain unchanged in terms of the frameworks we've used. 
But what we've really tried to do is focus on trying to find better businesses and maybe and trying to examine places where the businesses are better, trying to measure that in a quantitative way, and then digging a little bit more into understanding, okay, what are some of the qualitative reasons for why this business would continue the way it's going in terms of being a better business in terms of the numbers? So one of the metrics that we've really um, sort of focused on a lot has been return on invested capital and changes in return on invested capital. Um, John Huber has some really good information on that. And we've sort of used that framework with a little bit of a change in terms of measuring return changes in returns on invested capital. Um, because in my mind, that's the key piece of what's going on. Um, what you really want to sort of capture is companies basically are are part of a story. And the way to sort of think about it is the way I like to think about it is sort of like a movie. So in essence, what we're looking at right now in companies, it's sort of a snapshot of where they are now. What you want to try to predict is where is this company going to go in the future? So you're looking at the future frames of the movie. You can look at the past and sort of see, was this a good movie in the past? What sort of happened in the past? But then you, you as an investor, you basically want to try and say, okay, will it, you, you want to get a good return going forward. And, and from our, my perspective, one of the things that we try to take a look at is what is the current sort of, in, in the context of that, measuring that. And so you can measure that by taking a look at what's the return on invested capital of a business, the corresponding return on equity, Look, and the return on incremental invested capital basically gives you a sense of the change of that so you can see where that's going from an overall perspective. And so I would say what we've done in our portfolio is we've gone back and re-examined the specific companies in the portfolio and said, okay, let's take a look at what's happened when we first bought them to now, where's the movie going and what's continuing in the, and, and sort of project that forward and say, okay, is the movie getting better? Is it getting the same? But then on top of that, we've overlaid something that's changed between now and probably the last time we talked. And that's primarily the increase in interest rates. The increase in interest rates has risen, has increased the hurdle in terms of the amount of return you'd want to get for a specific investment. So now that has gone up quite a bit. So at least from a pure interest rate perspective, it's gone up by roughly 500 basis points probably since the last time we talked, which was you know around three years ago. And then on top of that, you have some risk premiums. So the way I like to take a look at it is saying, okay, what investments do we, what investments become a good investment now? And one way to take a look at that is to estimate the total return of an investment, which is a combination of the the actual, you know, the the actual growth rate of the company plus the dividends that are paid out in the business. And then that gives you a rough idea of what the and the growth rate of the business would include buybacks. And so getting at that total return number. And what we're trying to look for is total returns in the 15 to 20 ideally in the 20% range, which is sort of like what we're focusing on nowadays. So we're getting some kind of a combination of growth and dividends of at least 20%. And so what we've, the, the companies that we've had a tendency to, to disinvest from are the ones where the, the growth has been lower than that, which may have been fine in a, in a lower interest rate environment, but now the, the actual, uh, you know, the actual hurdle rates have gotten higher. So so in, in in terms of mining and specifically some of these mining types of companies, those types of businesses you had mentioned have a tendency to be these service businesses, these picks and shovels businesses, where in essence, they're providing a combination of service and product. The more service you have, the higher the recurring revenue piece of that. 
So I think there's a number of them that I think are really interesting. I think the challenge from a mining perspective is trying to find businesses that are more focused on mining because usually those the same picks and shovels that are used for mining are used for other activities, primarily construction. And so it's getting a trying to get some more exposure to more of the mining aspect of those businesses. And there's been some really interesting evolutions of some of the models. Some of these guys have really basically joint ventured with this, say a lot of these large mining companies to provide the maintenance and service of these businesses. And that can be a really nice business, especially in some places in South America with a lot of the copper companies down there and stuff like that. We can get into some of that later, but that, that sort of gives you an idea of sort of our evolution in sort of focusing on more, I would say higher return on capital businesses mm-hmm. in combination with sort of the overlap with the, from the mining perspective of where, where can we find some of these kind of businesses um, from a mining perspective? And like you're saying, it, it leads to, at least from an economic perspective to a less bumpy ride than, than purely investing in the miners. If you get the, if you get the commodity, right, the miners can be great. Right. I mean, but there's, but from a steady perspective over time, that can be pretty volatile because you've got changes in underlying costs to, to actually get the metal, the material, but then in addition to that, you've got personnel costs and other sort of costs that are in there that that make the 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 computation. So not only do you have changes in commodities, but your cost and the and the two moving together makes it a more complicated sort of uh, analysis versus like with a lot of these service companies, it's pretty much just providing a service and you're getting a recurring service because right. the miners are basically just you know. Like for example, a good a good example of these would be a lot of the the caterpillar dealers. They're in different parts of the world. What a caterpillar dealer is going to do is they're going to sell a piece of. Let's say for example, um, there's a company in in Peru that's the cat dealer in Peru. And the nice thing about these OEM equipment dealers is there's a, it's a few nice things. There's there's some caterpillar for example is a worldwide brand name. From an investor's U.S. investor's perspective. There's a, to a certain extent, there's a good amount of due diligence that sort of goes into. Cat's not going to want to have somebody that's a scammer being their dealer. So you have a really good sense of okay, the people that are running, that are granted these franchises by Caterpillar, they have a certain amount of due diligence. But then it and themselves, and and they're going to want to maximize, you know, the the in in dealing, they're going to maximize the customer satisfaction of the customers in those countries. So, for mm-hmm. example, in Peru. We call Ferry Corp. They're the Caterpillar dealer, the exclusive Caterpillar dealer in Peru. So what they do is they service all the major copper mines in Peru. And so what they've set up is they've set up a series of over time, they've set up a series of maintenance facilities close to the mines. And what these miners have decided to do is they say, okay, well, you know, rather than hiring, some of them do have their own staff, but it's a lot. These companies can provide the service to the equipment. They've got the connections back to CAT so that basically they can get the, the parts and all the whole the whole package together. And right now, if you look at a lot of these companies, about 60, about two-thirds of their revenue is from service, and a third is from initial products, which is a really nice combination. The gross product gross profit on service is higher too. So you're probably talking, they don't break it out separately, but if you look at other businesses like cars and other guys where you can get the breakout like that. You're probably talking to 70 to 80 percent of their gross profit probably being recurring recurring service revenue which really leads to a nice sort of annuity aspect of this business and one of the things that 
that Warren Buffett back in the 70s, what he was trying to look for was a lot of companies that were basically royalties on specific you know, businesses. And in essence, what these companies are, in effect, is royalties on continued you know, mining exploration for these minerals that are really required for for the green transition. So I think that's 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 the way I look, I look at it. I think it's an interesting way to sort of think about these businesses. And so what's really driving it long term is okay. Do you think we're going to need more copper? I think everybody would say yes. Over long term, we're going to need more copper. Are we going to need more of these other types of minerals? These these companies are providing services not only for copper, but there's lithium. There's also the huge mining operations in the oil sands up in Canada too. So that in essence is a mining operation where you just scrape up the oil sands, you deliver it to a plant that separates the oil sands from the sand, and you gotta you gotta truck it back. So in essence, that's a mining type of operation. So any mining, and then what's interesting about these businesses that provide that service, there's a lot of the same sort of services that are provided for you know civil works and construction and moving dirt around that's sort of the basis of a lot of these kind of businesses and so in essence there's multiple uses but right now i think the mining is really really generating a lot of the growth and potential growth and continued growth in these types of businesses from that perspective when you look at these different types of companies first off like how do you find a business like fairy corp and um like what separates them from any other competitors that might be able to provide a similar service? Like we'll just take kind of Ferry Corp in particular. And I know there's another one we'll talk about later, but um, how do you distinguish like what makes one competitor good versus another? And then after that, like when you do the work and you do the research, how do you determine how you're going to get paid and, and what that looks like? Is it a multiple expansion? Is it just dividends and buybacks? Like, you know, like you said, looking for that kind of 20% shareholder yield, walk me through those two questions. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think given the limited number of franchises that are around the world, you pretty much can just find, you can you can probably count on your hand the number of publicly traded um, Caterpillar franchise. So Caterpillar is one of the major developers or manufacturers of mining types of equipment. So that's where you start out. You start out with the OEMs and say, okay, here's the OEMs. CAD is probably one of the best OEMs when it comes to mining equipment. Then you look at, okay, they have these dealerships. Now, most of the dealerships that they've got are privately held. And these are held by people that basically can make, have made fortunes basically by holding these dealerships, by just providing good service. So in essence, these are like local monopolies that Caterpillar is providing in each one of the regions to basically provide the service and support that Caterpillar doesn't necessarily have the manpower to do, but these folks actually provide. So in essence, it's really an interesting situation where you've got the ones that are publicly traded are basically competing against private companies that are making made fortunes for people in the past and so that's that's one aspect that i really like so in terms of finding them you can there's not that many out there i mean in terms of the the big the major ones that are out there that are publicly traded you know they're associated with mining you've got ferry corp in peru you've got finning who basically is one that's that has the Western Canada Caterpillar franchise and has the Caterpillar franchise in Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina, and then has a Caterpillar franchise in the UK and Ireland. And then you have other company, you have another company that's um that's sort of in that business called Tormont, which basically has the cat franchise in eastern Canada. So that's Ontario and Quebec and those kind of areas. And then you have another cat, then you have 
another company up in Canada called Wayjax, and Wayjax is more of a, you know, their their brands aren't quite as strong. They've got they've got Hitachi is the is their major mining pieces of equipment, and they also do um, forestry. But what's really interesting is if you look at the margins, the gross margins on let's say these cat dealers versus let's say Wayjax. There's a there's a noticeable difference. I mean, the cat dealers are probably making about a five percent more gross margin than the than the Hitachi dealers, and and part of it I think is just the reputation that cat has, and you know the idea is that okay, you want if you're a miner, you want to get the equipment that's going to last the longest and the highest quality, and that's what cat is, and so and and basically these guys are providing the warranty service in addition to the continued service. Of these t these types and these pieces of equipment, so 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 those are the that that's how you find these major yeah. companies. Another another one that I think is interesting that's sort of allied to this, but not necessarily a dealer, but a guy that provides mining services is a company called North American Construction. Now, what those guys do is they provide sort of outsourced mine management, so they'll basically run the end of the mine and or they basically move dirt for for um, primarily um, mining companies up in Canada. One of the key differentiators they have is they have these First Nations partnerships, which are basically indigenous people's partnerships that are required for them to basically get these. So that's one of the barriers to entry that they have. But, it, but in essence, all these guys, they're, they're, they're creating, they're basically developing, you know, they're providing service to these high-end sort of mining equipment companies. Um, and then in terms of the, the types of returns on capital, again, I, what I'm looking for in a number of these, um, they have returns on equities probably closer to the high teens, almost low 20, 20s in some cases. And th those are the types of returns that I'm looking for. And the management teams have been focused on that. If you take a look at the presentation, some of them are really good in terms of what they've tried to do over time. Now, there's two of them in this group that probably have what I would say are sort of fair multiples. There's Tormont up in Canada. Another company in Australia called Mater Group. Yep. Mater Group was primarily a group of former cat maintenance people that, mm -hmm. in essence, decided to go out and basically provide this maintenance services. Similar, Wayjax does some of that too, but Wayjax doesn't have quite the same brand brand recognitions as some of the cat stuff too. So you'll see some change difference in the gross margins. But both of those companies are trading probably right now at about. A 24 times 20 to 25 times free cash flow yeah i know mater mater's expensive i i found mater just kind of going through trying to search for these types of companies and it looks like an awesome business but it is it is expensive i mean it's not it's not fairy corp but four times oh, oh yeah no it's interesting because if you look at the guys backgrounds they all came from they're all cat cat service guys and cat that is maker. fascinating so, so in essence, it's the same. They're saying, okay, we're going to find the part of this business that we think we can get really good high returns on, and that's what we're going to do. And that's exactly what they've done. And so these are sort of subset. I always look at them as sort of a subset of these larger, because when you're a dealer, you know, there's some really good businesses in there, but then there's a business that may not be as good, but you sort of have to take the whole package as part of the dealership agreement with the OEM. So, but in most cases, these dealers are making really good returns on capital just because i think of just the, the tailwinds of both that they have an interesting tailwind because they most of the most of the most of these guys their 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 end user mix is primarily mining and construction yeah and those two areas right now in north america specifically 
And in Latin America, when you're talking about mining, there's a nice tailwind behind those two. And as long as that continues, these guys should, over time, their returns on capital have increased, and they should continue to have increases in returns on capital. So it's a very, it's a very interesting kind of a kind of a segment um, from that perspective. So then, going back to kind of Ferry Corp, how do you think about return on your investment? So one of the big kind of uh, questions I have when I look at something like a Ferry Corp or, or or really anything that's that's low multiple is okay it's at four times earnings right now that's super attractive but why does this thing deserve to trade at you know six eight times earnings or how how, how am I going to make my money like is someone else going to discover this is this just a buyback machine like walk me through kind of how you're thinking about how you'll make money from that okay so the way right now the company's probably making I would say like seventeen to eighteen percent call it like high high double digit returns on equity okay they distribute about half of that so you're getting a dividend of about 10 percent and then the remainder is is retained for growth so in essence right now so that probably turns eight to nine percent growth the dividend yields around 11 so you're getting a 19 percent total return assuming no change in multiple and so in essence those are the kind of situations that, that we're really trying to find where we can get high teens, low double digits growth, assuming no change in multiples. Now, if multiple changes, then it's great. But in essence, when you the way I guess how the process has evolved is, whereas previously I was counting, not really count, but really relying more on multiple rating as part of the process, I've sort of tried to de-emphasize that and sort of say, okay, well, let's find businesses that are going to grow. Mm -hmm. either through dividends and or reinvestment and having the business grow and then if i can find them for a cheap multiple then that just adds to the top of it and so that then all of a sudden your returns are above the 20 percent. then you're getting into th those higher numbers but what i've what i've experienced over time is that multiple rating is probably what i would consider to be one of the mo less less reliable ways companies can grow over time and you know, given my background as a valuation analyst and starting out really doing valuation, that was sort of the approach that I was comfortable with initially. But over time, I've tried to really recognize that that although that's part of the puzzle, I would say what's as or maybe even more important than that is sort of this this growth aspect of the business because that's something that's really more in management's control. And if you can find management and, and, the, and the industry's control and you probably get a better sense of what that number is versus what's the multiple because the, the, the multiple is what mr market says it's worth and that's the most volatile of it all yeah but the growth and the nice thing about the growth companies is if you find a nice growth company like this and it can grow you know high teens low 20 percent over time your life it, it, it executes what happens over time is it becomes something you can just hold on to for a long time and it really, I mean, it's very interesting because I think one thing, you know, portfolio management process, I didn't realize early on, but I think this happens with Buffett and other people that you really don't see it sort of underneath the radar is basically you, you have a number of companies and you have a number of theses and you sort of see what happens. I think what a lot of guys do is if they see the thesis isn't working out, they'll cut those out and what you have remaining in terms of a selection bias are the theses that have worked out and those will compound over time. And I think those are very consistent with the stuff that we see in terms of stock returns. There's only a very few number of stocks that basically create most of the returns. 
And so if part of your portfolio process is going through and pruning early on when you see that, okay, I thought this company was going to do this and it didn't necessarily do this and some, it got worse or whatever, then all of a sudden, then, then what you're going to have left over are companies that have met your expectations and are companies that are predictable over time. And I think that creates a very nice sort of portfolio and sort of falls into a lot of the other data that we see about stocks over time. And it becomes more of a, in, in my mind, I think it, it becomes more of a long-term investment philosophy rather than more of a trading trading situation, which I, I think, you know, when you look at a lot of multiple stuff, a lot of it is, it's, it's when people talk about things like the value factor and stuff like that, I really, the more I've come to more think of it as more of a long-term trading strategy. There's nothing wrong with a trading strategy. You just need to realize that's what you're doing as opposed to trying to find longer-term things that are going to grow that you can, that you can hold on to for longer periods of time. So when you look at Ferry Corp and you and you decide, okay, you know, whether it's quarterly or monthly, just say, you know, how's how's the thesis playing out? What do I need to prune? What would you need to see happen in Ferry Corp for it to hit the chopping block and you to say, okay, this thing is not working, I gotta prune this one for my portfolio. I, I would think a some 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 of the growth expectations not happening. I mean, given the way that they're they're distributing stuff now, I know I'm gonna get at least a 10% growth. But if the growth turns out to be flat and I'm expecting 8%, then there's, there's something going on there. Right? And I need to really investigate it and see what's happened. Now, now there could be an explanation for it, right? I mean, if another COVID or something, a major shock happens, then you can say, okay, well, that, that may be it. But, but if, the, if everyone else in the business is doing well and they're not, then, then that, may, that raises a lot of questions. And it also... For, for, for our portfolio, what it's really resulted in is that a lot of the slower growing businesses that we held that had cheap multiples, we've decided to sort of move on to those and look for businesses that have higher growth internally and through this combination of this total growth. And we still can get for, I would say, anywhere from mid single digits to low double digit multiples, maybe mid double digit multiples. So that's sort of the target range that we're looking yeah. at from a multiple perspective, but in essence, just selecting companies that we think have the growth profile that can really outperform from that perspective. I want to shift to North America construction, uh, mm -hmm. simple, NOA. I own this in my personal account, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, a little, a little bit of bias there, but, uh, I, I I remember the DM that you that you sent me and you said, hey, you know, I know you're in the looking in the mining space. So you got to check this company out. And I read a couple earnings transcripts, and then I, I was was reading the annual report, and 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 I could tell very early on that the CEO they had, um, and you know that they still have, he seemed very very sharp and very 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 good at what he does. And um, I liked like how we thought about capital allocation, low cost model. And just seeing the evolution of that business and how they described it over time, um, I thought was fascinating. And so, um, you know, bought 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 a small position, still 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 doing work on it. But um, it was it was enough initially to 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 get me excited to to buy some to buy some shares. So walk me through that business um, on a on a deep dive, kind of soup to nuts. Like, what do they do? Why does the opportunity exist? And then and then how much money? um you know would you would you make if you're right on this idea okay so so north american construction it's probably the easiest way to describe what they do is moving dirt so yep. that that's the core of their business is they just move dirt they get they have their contracts they have longer term contracts to do this 
they get paid on a per load basis. And so what they've done is the original, as you're saying, that the, the story of the, the business is this is the company started out primarily servicing the oil sands customers up in northern Canada. The CEO said, okay, this is a this is a this is a this is a good business, but it's very cyclical. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and go out and diversify, trying to find other areas where we can apply our dirt moving skills and, and generate decent returns. I mean, one of the issues with a lot of in, engineering and these types of construction businesses, one of the one of the risks could be one of the biggest risks in these types of businesses is basically signing up for a fixed price contract and not understanding the costs and getting a cost overrun. That's what kills most of these kind of businesses. Yep. These, these guys have a pretty standard, you know, it's a pretty, the, the costs are pretty predictable, I think. And that's the one thing. And it's what's very interesting is they've looked at, they looked at the capital intensity of the business and they said, okay, well, what are the most capital intensive parts of this business? And we're going to try to focus on reducing the cost of them. So there's two, there's, the miners themselves in terms of the people we can schedule those people but the the other big piece is actually the big equipment that they use and so they focused on primarily being able to optimize the use of this equipment and, and hire technicians to basically optimize the use of these big dump trucks in essence over time to do that and what's actually happened is is over time they, they've been able to uh you know, you know, do do this sort of optimize it, and they have a whole team up there that maintains these trucks, and it's even gotten to the point where they get they're all actually do maintenance on other people's trucks as sort of an outsource service. It's not a large part, but it's it's part of what they do. But this but this goes back to like you had mentioned, Mater Company, Mater Mater Corp. This is what their core of their business is is primarily providing these services and being able to determine where where our service is going to be worth more versus less and focusing on those areas similar to like sort of like what ashti does with leasing it tries to find these little niches it's very where, similar of, of where they can get the higher they know what their skills are it's a matching their skill set to where the high return on capital opportunities are and that's what you really want in these management teams. And what's what's very what I think is really interesting about North American is they, they they've honed that skill down. And most of their project, all their projects, they know that very well. And the other aspect about North American versus other areas is the regions that they're competing in. There's a uh, there's a, a lot, the supply is constrained. Which if you look at engineering and construction, where most of the issues come in is okay, you. You under you underestimate a fixed price contract and it blows up and you just end up. Well, what's the why? Why are you doing that? The only reason you're doing that is because you have four or five other guys that are there and you're all competing for the same job. Right. So if you look at the nature of a lot of the businesses where North American is, especially up in the oil sands and the other area they focus on is they focus on mines up in places like Nineveh in these really northern regions you know, like that are diamond mines. And so in essence, there's not a whole lot of competition there. I have a friend of mine who basically was a, owns a contracting company up in, up in, up in Canada. And he basically bid on a job in some remote place. And he said that the amount that he could get on that job was five times what he could get in a more competitive place. And this was, and so what happens in these areas, if these guys know, and I've talked with some other guys that are sort of in this business and said, yeah, that's the way this business works. If you're in these supply constrained regions, 
then, then, then these returns are possible. I mean, even, I mean, what's interesting is, okay, up in the oil sands, there's I think four, four or five major guys that provide this type of service. Even the guys that lose the contracts still continue to, the other guys up there continue to use them as subcontractors. And so in essence, it's really more of a supply constrained sort of issue. So this is probably very similar to like what you're looking for in commodities. You're trying to find the place where the supply is constrained. Right. Well, that's where, that's what North, the unique, I think, position that North America's in is that its markets are supply constrained. And what that really allows you to do is it provides great pricing power. I mean, because the conditions that these, the, this service is provided is so, is so severe. So for another example of that is, um, in some places where they supply equipment to these mines, they can only go there in the winter. They can only transport the equipment in and out during the winter time, because what happens is the permafrost de it, it basically unfreezes and you, the equipment's stuck there. Well, what happens and what that does, and therefore, when you are bidding on these projects, there's not many people that are going to want to say, okay, I'm going to leave my equipment up there. If it gets stuck, then I'd sort of stuck. So you're, you're limiting the competition to begin with, but then, what it does allow them to do, like for example, during COVID, some of the you know the people that supplied the this equipment to these really remote areas, they were able to get like 60 to 70 percent of the revenue per year by not without running the equipment. So what it really does, this lack of competition really creates some really nice opportunities for management teams that realize that. And I think part of the advantage of North American is they've seen that up in uh, up in you know up in the oil sands areas they've done but then they've tried to find other opportunities so the other one of their other major services they provide is what's called end of mine life sort of for for coal mines and so they they got two coal mines in the united states that basically what they'll do is they'll come in and manage the whole mine though the the from a given point to end of life and what that really does is so what these guys have done is they've taken they found specific services and that specific products and then they've added service on top of it value-added services and i think that's if you look at distributors in general which a lot of these guys are sort of in essence what they're trying to do these value-added services can add a lot of value because it's just managers these opportunities are out there and these managers can find it and so that's so north american construction like you're saying is very interesting so the other thing that's happened over the past six months is they bought a similar company in Australia. Mm -hmm. And what's happened there is, so they, they owned a company in Australia that was primarily a parts supplier. And so they had developed relationships with this, this other company they just recently bought. And so in essence, now they've got a company in Australia that's doing a similar thing with coal mines. And so what you've seen over time is initially North American construction, I don't know, probably 2012 timeframes that had like 90, 95% of its revenue was oil sands. Now oil sands is a much smaller piece and they've got a lot of other, so this company is, that's getting, it's getting bigger, better as it's getting bigger because you're getting diversity across different types of, of situations. And what they're hope, one of the things that they're looking at also is one of the, they also want a project um, that's civil works in Canada and the U S and the concession contractor there also does a lot of concession stuff in Australia. So that what they're, what they're, and they have a really good relationship with them. So what they're hoping is that, is that over time they can get some big, big concession work in Australia and other parts of the world. So it's a, I think it's an interesting thing, but one of the key skills I think management really has to have 
is understanding, okay, where are the good high return on capital projects and where should I spend my time? And if you look at over time, what's happened specifically with, with North American construction is over time, their return on capital has just gone up. Yeah. And that, and, and that really, to me, says that, okay, these guys are finding places and they're disciplined enough to just do projects where they where they think this is going to happen. So, like, for example, so to give you some idea of some of the numbers. Mm -hmm. So this year, they're projecting a return on invested capital of roughly 15% and return on equity of 27%. Now next right. year, when they're when they're when the acquisition is fully integrated, you're going to have a return on invested capital is probably going to be up to fifteen and a half, and a return on equity of forty three percent. So what's really happening there is again the company is selectively choosing the projects where they can make where their skills match what what the customer needs, and I think that's the that's a key aspect of it, and. You know, so 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 that that what that company does is it really is providing and saying it's the simplest thing is it just moves dirt in places that are supply constraints. The pricing that they can get is very good. And so with that supply constraint, because I I, I get that intuitively, but then the other part of my brain is like, okay, if North America sees these supply constrained markets, like someone surely has to also see that. And so what's preventing? another competitor or you know a consortium of competitors from also seeing those markets and trying to enter and 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 then you know thus bid down the price is it because like i think i think one of it is is just like the amount of equipment you have to have plus mm -hmm. just the cost of maintenance to maintain that equipment and to have the capacity and just to have the utilization to where you can actually okay sign the contract and actually go deliver those vehicles so yeah. Is there, is there, you know, is it, is, is it kind of like that in terms of barriers to, you know, that, 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 that's one. Cause I mean, one thing the North American does, which I think is a great thing to do is they have target utilizations of equipment. Yeah. So if you look at their dollar utilization of equipment, it's like 70%. And if you go back to Ashteed, 70, what 70% 70 dollar utilization means is for every dollar you invest in equipment, you're making 70 cents revenue every year, which, which you can see is a very, very good a good thing. And if you go back to, if you compare it to somebody like Ashteed and some of these other guys that are rental guys, I mean, Ashteed will maybe make something 50, 60%, but the 70% stuff they say is what they, what's what they de describe as sort of specialty rentals. Yeah. And those are like value adds. So in essence, they'll go out and get a piece of equipment, and add some service on top of the rental and get, and get additional margin. That's sort of like what North Americans doing in terms of their stuff. It's value add. The other big piece, I think, for North American are these indigenous partnerships because in essence, there's only a limited number of them. And in, especially in the oil sands that 90 to 95, 90% of their contracts are bidding on is, is with an indigenous partner. And I think that's a, in, in some countries, and I think it, that's happening in Australia too, for the Aboriginal groups, that's another aspect that provides a little bit more of a, so, so there's, like you're saying, there's a, first of all you're not going to find many people that are going to up so you got a labor issue yeah you've got an equipment issue just because of the aspects we talked about before about equipment not being up there and then on top of that you've got the government saying okay we want to we want indigenous peoples to be involved with this thing so in essence you have almost three air three sort of barriers to entry of other people just coming in and doing it because like you're saying i mean what will happen is if you got us if you have a similar kind of a project somewhere in north america 
it's going to be super competitive and no and people are just the profits just going to be eaten away by competitors but if you can find these little niches where in essence and, and going back to sort of the dealers the niche they have is they've got exclusive contracts with caterpillar you've got the best equipment person out there and you've got an exclusive deal so in each of these cases you do have i think moats in these markets because of either the exclusivity that they've got with a really good oem or in the case of north american construction you've got these other aspects of the business that make it more i would say you know there, there are additional sort of moats that are there that may not first be obvious but those but you see you see those the other thing too is you want to see it in the numbers right i mean someone could say i have a moat yeah but if your return on invested capital isn't high i mean it may right. not be it may not be there or it may not be as good as you think it is you're seeing it in the numbers here i mean that's i mean when i first looked at north american construction i just said this this does not look like a construction company to me in terms of the return no. on capital and the way that they're doing stuff and like you're saying management's a really important aspect too the the former CEO that's now the chairman came in in 2012 and pretty much just said, okay, we're going we're, we're gonna to expand out from oil sands. And if you go back and you take a look at his return, his cash flow from operations before working capital, and you can see at that point, it went down a little bit, but then it just kept on creeping up and up and up. So a lot of, I think what you're really seeing in these management teams are management teams finding good projects. Because part of the thing is there's a huge amount of work that these guys could potentially do but what you want your management team to do is to focus on the areas where their skills match the opportunity there and they and they can get some kind of decent you know decent profit and it's a win-win for everybody which i think is sort of like what they've what they what they what they've been doing from that perspective and so i mean i've done saying i mean i know a buddy of mine that basically owns a construction company up in canada his dad and grandfather basically was in the same business and so got yeah. a little bit of insight there but then in addition just talking to other people that were that, that, that are they've worked with these folks and understand how how this whole operation works up there and it's these uh i think these i would say um you know capacity constrained type situations i think are very interesting the real question you always have to ask is okay it, when's this going to end how long do you think this thing's going to last? Because if it's only for a short period of time, the capacity constraints not going to. But if you if you look at the, for example, in the North American construction, okay, there's only a limited number of First Nations groups, so you know that's that's going to just have some constraint on it. You know, there's not a whole lot of people that want to go up to these places, and so you got you got a people constraint, and then you, again you've got the the equipment issues and equipment constraint aspect of it. And I, I really like how. North American guys, their whole process was around taking a look at, okay, let's find the most capital intensive piece of this business and let's focus on that and try to make that, make it more efficient. Because part yeah. of what, part of where you really can get a lot of growth in businesses is if you, if you focus on, okay, what's the most capital intensive piece and whether I can deliver it faster or better or cheaper than someone else, and then I'm going to have an advantage. And the, and the key piece behind all this is basically they have high utilization on all this equipment, which, you know, I mean, you can you can talk about things like right now, this is more of just a, an interesting sort of tailwind that's going on. You know, the replacement costs, right now they're selling for about half the replacement cost of the equipment. Wow. Which may or may not be a good thing depending upon what your utilization is, right? If your utilization is low, then half replacement costs may be which you could get, but these guys have utilization high and their incentives are all to continue to utilize this thing on a very high basis. So that provides another idea of where you think this, this business can go. I mean, it's, 
I mean, it's it, it's it's a very interesting business, and I think management has provided a very interesting platform. Now, the 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 guy that was the CEO and president, he's sort of he's the chairman now, and now he's got another guy, one of the guys that, that stepped up a few years ago to basically be the president at this point. But but I think he's sort of following in the same footsteps, and it's a, it's it's an interest. I think a very interesting situation. Well, the other part that I really found fascinating again, it was just like there's. Sometimes when when you when you read a company or you read a transcript or you read a report, there's nothing that really stands out to you. Sometimes there is on you know the bad side. Sometimes there is on the good side. But they were discussing the cost side of the business. And if you if if anyone's kind of worked in and around heavy equipment or tried to get someone to do heavy equipment repair, those types of jobs and that type of labor is very much like HVAC plumbing or any of those trades like those guys can just name their price basically because yeah. no one knows how to do it like i had i had a buddy that needed to uh needed needed to repair um you know just like a a grove crane like you know one of those one of those just carry deck cranes and you know he called and he's like look i have like zero idea how to fix this so like if this guy comes out and he tells me it's x amount i just i have to pay because i need the equipment to run my job and to do my job and like I just need it fixed. And so I say all that because I noticed that in the reports and in the transcripts, they made the distinction that they turned that cost center into, like you mentioned earlier, a revenue center and just part of their internal business. So they integrated there where they have their own service and maintenance guys in-house on staff, which helps with the utilization, but then they can also send those guys out to repair other equipment. Because the advantage there is, it costs so much less to repair your own equipment if you have somebody in house than to a third party because the third party is going to charge literally whatever they want and yeah. you're at the whims of their schedule and how much capacity they have i just and 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 i just thought that was fascinating because they said like over the last 5 years their cost per you know, it's like their average maintenance cost per equipment is is like stagnant or lower than it was 5 years ago which is the opposite of the massive inflation you've seen pretty much everywhere else along the cost structure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and so there's a huge benefit of extending the life of existing because the replacement cost is so high. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect I think of the business in terms of the value add of that kind of service, I think you see that illustrated in Mater, right? I mean, Mater does that business and they found the niches where they can make a lot of money and they're, you know, they're generating 20, 30% returns on, on on uh, equity by doing that type of stuff, and so you know you have some of these businesses that are also doing it um, that are part of the larger aspect of it. But I think what North Americans done is like you're saying that's they, they've they've realized that's a key piece of how they can generate high returns on capital and focused and put the manpower there. I mean, so you you've got you've got guys like that, and then you've got guys like like Finning up in Canada, which is which is another. They're they're the, they're the large cat dealer in Western Canada and down in some of the mining regions in, in South America too, and they, and they, I think they they you know they, they have a similar a similar kind of a thing from that perspective. I mean they've got a little bit higher. I think what you'll see that the gross margins are a little bit higher than guys like Wayjax and Mater, um, but they but they still they still they've got a really good business there. I mean and what's I think what's very interesting about these businesses, even these dealers is that two thirds of the revenue again. So, so you're two thirds of the revenue is service. 
And so again, you're talking, you know, the high from a gross profit perspective, probably going to be higher than that. Maybe 70, 80% of their gross profit is service. And that's recurring business. That's not one-time sales. And so it's what's happened is the installed bases of these pieces of equipment are so big. And that's and these guys basically are serv servicing the installed bases. So why is a company like North American so cheap? Like if I if I pull up on Koifin, um, I'm I'm just looking at their estimates, right? So this is all mm -hmm. subject to change. But EBITDA, and again, they just had an acquisition, so some of this is inorganic growth. But we'll just look at kind of 2023 year end. They're trading at about four times EBITDA, thirteen times EBIT, um, and they've got you know they've 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 got some debt. But I mean, if you assume the acquisition goes well and that brings in the revenue and um you know earnings that it's expected to you're looking at a business that is trading less than 10 times ebit just you know 18 months 24 months out that has these competitive advantages and these barriers to entry um and trading at half replacement costs so why is it why is it so cheap you think I think part of the, the thing is is if you look at similar types of businesses and these guys are getting better with this is the free cash flow conversion of the business historic in these businesses some of them can be relatively low you know in the 20s the free cash flow conversion is going to be in the 40s by the time they're done with this so, so so that's part of it i mean i think the other thing too is trying to find who, who are you going to compare these guys to right i mean if you if you the the the, the, the dynamics of the competition they face in canada is so different than the dynamics of other companies you would compare them to in terms of earth moving construction companies just because of the 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 restriction in terms of the the the, the restrictions on supply that i think it's it's sort of it's almost, it's almost like one it's like a one of type of company because i mean if you look at other engineering construction companies that move dirt i mean most of them are going to have most of their activity in north america where they're going to be competing with a number of different people to get these contracts and, and and that situation totally leads to a different dynamic in terms of the returns you can get i think so i think that's that's part of it um I, I think the other thing is that the business is evolving and getting better and so i think what you'll see a lot of times is that people will value the business as the way it was not the way it is and what it's going to be so if you go to the movie analogy you're valuing the business you saw the movie of it you know what the history is you're valuing it so it's there. It may be changing now, but you're not valuing what it's going to look like in the future. And so that's part of, I think, where you can, you know, where, where, where I think it's an interesting thing to sort of to, to think about. In a lot of these businesses, I think the catalyst, in essence, is just sort of the change in underlying business. And once people realize what's really going on here, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot better. I mean, even going back to the Ashteed example, if you look at companies, rental companies 10, 15 years ago, they're totally different than the companies now. Yeah. And it's the evolution of these businesses to become better businesses, I think is where the opportunity lies. And it creates a sort of a nice tailwind from that perspective. So yeah, so I mean, I think that's the that's the thing with North American. It's probably from what I see, it's basically a one of type of a business. And the fact that the unique aspect of the of, of the competition they have and it's and so that that, that really because like for example like so we talked before i think we were saying like in 2018 94 percent of their revenue come from oil sands now yeah. it's down to 35 percent 
And so, they, and they, and in addition with this this um, acquisition acquisition in Australia, they've spread out or they've diversified the the, the mines that they're that they're servicing. They're doing coal and gold and iron ore. So there's a lot of different types of people, different types of minerals that basically they're providing. So I mean, I think if we're looking for a play on minerals continuing to be a, a growth demand area, I think North America is probably one of the better better place to do that because it's 100 percent i mean if you look at some of these other companies even the ones we were talking about before like ferry ferries maybe 60 percent of its revenues associated with mining yeah. but north americans for the most part it's 100 percent if you include oil sands which i sort of think is sort of more like a mining than it is traditional oil and gas drilling so i think in terms of being able to play a lot of these mining the 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 the, the trend of increased mining i think uh it's North American is probably one of the one of the better plays out there. And like you're saying, the nice thing about it is when you're getting these kinds of return on capital. The other thing I didn't mention is that their contracts are really long. Hmm. I mean, at this point, you know, they're going to have, you know, at the end of the year, I think they're anticipated having a backlog. It's like a billion or something, like one point nine billion, I think. Well, yeah. Well, they said at the end of of next this year, they're expecting a background backlog of four billion dollars. Wow the acquisition and that represents yeah. roughly about two and a half years of sales which when you compare that to other companies even even some of these uh of these dealers and the service and those types of the service guys probably usually have less than a year and i think that's another unique thing about them is just their longer term contracts that they've got and the locked in so in essence what you've got is you got a recurrent you've got a good recurring revenue stream i think like at one point they they said like 85 to 90 percent of the business is sort of recurring year to year and what that really provides is you know a recurring revenue business and i think part of the problem with valuing these types of businesses is you don't expect to see a recurring revenue business in a mining a guy that moves dirt right i mean you just don't it's just not you know when, when you look at a software company you sort of expect it you say okay and therefore they're willing to pay up for that you don't expect it in this type of a business. So I think that's part of the other aspect of it is that it's unusual in just the, the nature of what it's of what it's trying to do versus the versus the other companies in that type of business and what people expect it to be. But how do you think how, how do you how do you think about the total shareholder return equation here? Whether that's dividends, buybacks, debt pay down. I know they've got, you know, like I said, they just did an acquisition. I think they've got like five hundred million in net debt just or maybe 600 something just looking at koi fin um for year end let me just double check here it looks like net debt well i'm looking at ashteed let's see just as a comparison um okay so net debt here if i look yeah uh, 2023 estimated year end 622 million so about two times net debt to ebitda so walk me through that kind of shareholder return equation what's the what's what's the mix how are you anticipating those well yeah well yeah what, what, what i think we can look at for north american they they retain about 90 percent of their earnings depending upon what you think the return on equity is going to be you know let's say it's i don't know let's let, let's say it's like 30 percent so 30 percent at at 90 90 percent that's 27 percent it's got about one percent dividends you're probably talking somewhere in the 20 in the mid 20% range total return on this thing. And and the real the real I guess the potential the potential downside on that could be is okay, 
that let's say I, I guess it could be sort of loss of, of the contracts and if you take a look at the contracts one by one it, it doesn't appear that that's that they're longer term in nature they've been in the oil sands for a long period of time they've got these indigenous partnerships which prevent which which help them along those lines um so so i guess i guess the danger could be is okay let's say rather than them making 30 percent, let's say they make 20 percent. so even if it's 20 percent, they're making 18 19 so you're so even on the downside if they're making 19 percent, you're going to get a 20 percent return on on total capital on growth and that assumes no change in multiple so again so you're somewhere between 20 and 30 percent underlying growth in this business assuming no change in valuation so to me that's that that's the way i sort of try to take a look at these things and you just say okay i mean that's a pretty good equation to me and given the fact that you know i think next year they're estimated to make like what six dollars and 54 in 2014 they're based upon their their estimate here they're esti they're estimating to make six dollars and 54 cents in free cash flow next year next year and it's selling for what is it like 22 bucks 22 bucks yeah. yeah yeah so i mean so so if these if these if these growth numbers come to fruition and they stick around for even a few years you know the multiple is going to go up so in my mind it's just like okay let's find a growth engine that we think that i think can grow at a decent amount and you can see these numbers for north american are higher than what we were talking about before for these mining services businesses yeah and so that's that, that that's part of the reason that i've sort of you know just just from a disclosure you know bonhoeffer does own both north american and ferry corp um from that perspective but yeah so we um, but we, but, but that's, but that's why we really liked it. Cause we said, okay, cause part of the pro our process to go through, okay, what do we think these businesses are going to grow and trying to come up with, okay, we're trying to find businesses that are, that are above our threshold. And as we mentioned earlier, we think our threshold is 15 to 20. This one clearly is way above it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it does, it's gonna, it does have some, some more risks in the fact that's associated with commodities, but then what's offsetting for that is the longer term nature of the contracts they have. And the way these guys historically management has been able to to select the opportunities that they're able to bid on and win and continue to make good returns right? i think i think north america whether it's you know north america mater group those types of names they reflect a broader thesis that i'm gaining more and more conviction on which is the supply demand imbalance in labor for these end industries whether it's mining whether it's oil and gas, um, but particularly mining. And I shared mm -hmm. I shared a couple charts over the past couple weeks on Twitter, um, just showing how the supply of, of of mining labor, whether that's you know from blue collar just you know picks in the ground to the more you know advanced degree engineering type stuff like Colorado mm -hmm. School of Mining. It's almost seventy percent of enrollment down from you know in 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 in, in mining education from you know decades ago and. Gen Z doesn't want to go into mining. And so I've got this like mental model of, okay, I spend all this time trying to find which commodities have the largest supply demand imbalance. But really, if you if you take a step back, the 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 labor market is arguably one of the largest deficits and one of the largest imbalances. Um, if you if you think about it over the next five to ten years, and like these companies are direct beneficiaries of them. And so the value that you place on each labor dollar inside these businesses um, 
like you can you can almost create evaluation that way where okay the value of one person at Mater over the next five years like why can't that grow at 30 to 40 percent if no new supply is coming online and then you just oh, yeah. multiply the employees by you know the you know multiply that value by the number of employees and by and you know you can you can almost get like a per employee valuation based on the you know skills oh, oh yeah no no that like you're saying i mean and, and these and, and i think that's going to continue that's a very interesting way to think about it and i think that makes a lot of sense and the all these businesses are going to be huge beneficiaries of that and the advantage of that is it's not like it's not you're not subject to not only estimating which commodity is going to go up and when is it going to go up and then so, so the, i mean the challenge of the commodity stuff is you've got you've got the the actual commodity itself which is going up and down and then you've got it, the costs which are going up and down yeah what you're really providing here is you're providing some of the costs that these guys know they need to incur to basically get these 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 rocks out of the ground right i mean yeah. they, they can't they can't not do this it's not like they can come up they can't use ai to all of a sudden come up with a mining person to pull something out of the ground right i mean it's just it's a it's it's a internet proof almost type of a type of a business from that perspective so and then especially when you're dealing in areas where the 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 environment is harsh especially like in northern canada I mean, it's like you're saying, I mean, you know, any, any mining engineer or even a mining sort of tech that wants to go up in Canada, they can name their price because there's just like, there's just not that much competition. And the only way to get these mines to work, I mean, the other thing about oil sands is interesting is Canada is just about finished with the mountain pipeline. And that's going to add a huge amount of capacity to basically export oil sands out of, out of uh, Northern Canada. So not only you know you're gonna have this current amount, but you I think you may actually get a little bit of a boost of demand of moving the dirt for the oil sands, which is sort of like what North America gets. So you've got a lot of these sort of tailwinds and supply constraint. So when you've got more demand, like you're saying, less supply, and you can see it not only in the commodity markets, which I think are a little bit more of a challenge because that the, the basis of are there's commodities. Yeah. But if you can if you can get these support businesses. They do this kind of stuff. There's another company in Canada called Wayjax that provides similar types of support people as um, as as Mater does. But in essence, what they do is, you know, their brands are not as strong as like the Cat brand. Yeah. So they do have some stuff. The brands aren't as strong, but that's that's another interesting company. I mean, that company sells at like you know seven seven times free cash flow. Yeah. I mean, thinnings at twelve times free cash flow. And again, these businesses. If you're making high teens return on on equity and the, and the thing is is that when you look at these businesses you say is there is there a tail i mean yeah a tailwind on top of this it makes it even better right because they're able to make this kind of money with you know there's somewhat of a tailwind but again it's not it's it's not a huge i mean you probably know more about this than i do in terms of the dynamics of copper in terms of what's really going on there in terms yeah. of the potential tailwind that could really catapult these guys to the next level in terms of the demand for their services. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, look, I think, I think what it comes down to is like with any commodity investment and I, I wrote about this um, last week for our, for, for our members, but just kind of comparing any commodity, the magnitude of the supply demand deficit, um, you really have to look at what the drivers are for both supply and demand and specifically demand. And so like with copper, my, my, my thing has always been like, 
I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant on this green energy net zero thing. And the moment that that green energy net zero starts to churn backwards to feasible, possible, okay, this is never going to happen, that changes the entire dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, where like with something like the labor markets, that's why I think that's so fascinating. And I might, you know, I might take some time to write this out, but like you have like very clear demand drivers that are less uh, based on these, you know, kind of um, political agendas and ESG things, like even just for base, call it just base OPEX for the world, you need a certain amount of labor to bring minerals online. And if you have that, you know, base OPEX met with a dwindling supply base, um, you know, I think, I think you have a chance to have like one of the most attractive pricing power industries for the next five to 10 years, which sounds crazy, right? Because who wants, like, who's, who's thinking of pricing power in the mining industry in a, in a, in a commodity industry, but yeah. that's really how you have to look at it. Like there is tremendous pricing power that could be untapped over the next five to 10 years if things pretty much stay where they are now based on, you know, the trends that have happened. Well, the other thing too, about the whole, you know, electrical sort of transition, I think in my mind, we're, we're going to get there eventually. It's a question of timing, right? I mean, I think what a lot of the ESG stuff may be just pulling, trying to pull some of that stuff forward. So it's not, in my mind, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And even if the ESG stuff gets toned down a little bit, like you're saying, I mean, I think what's going to happen is stuff will happen in 20 years as opposed to 10 or, you know, yeah. 10 versus five. So, I mean, it's just a question of, is it going to become more economically feasible? Because, it, I mean, running a, for example, running a, a car, a, a electricity is more, it's more efficient. It's just a question is, do we have enough, we have the technology today to make it affordable and so that, so that people can really use it as an alternative to an internal combustion sort of approach things. And and the whole thing with the, the electricity thing, it's just, it's just a huge, in my, in my mind, I think that's a, you know, it's an interesting way. And I think what's interesting about these businesses is i think you can clearly see some long-term trends driving it so you've got the the mining trend you've got for some of these equipment guys that are doing you know tr you're going to need to start for construction and trends. so you've got some really nice long-term trends here but what's happening is it's not reflected in the pricing yeah i mean the thing i was surprised at is even if you look at a company like caterpillar so caterpillar is selling for a very reasonable price the oem about 50 percent uh, it's not 50 it's probably about 40 percent of the revenue is service revenue it's not even the original equipment and so cat is a, another interesting so i mean if even if you look at the oem in this case it's a very it's a very interesting i mean a little less mining is probably only 20 percent of the business so you're not going to get track mining but even somebody like a caterpillar is an interesting business to look at from a uh, a large you know, just just a large business that's gotten better over time yeah um, yeah, there's yeah. so many there's so many ways that you can play this. And again, like at the end of the day, it's trying to find those pockets where the imbalance magnitude of supply and demand is the largest, then that that you believe has the most durability over the next, you know, two, 18, 18 to 24 months. Because you mentioned like copper, the thesis could play out, the copper deficits could explode. And I agree, like there's like the arguments definitely are 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 persuasive that over time, over a long enough time. If we don't do something drastic, copper is going to enter massive deficits. Um, you know, it could be anywhere from like five to twelve million tons. Which again, we're talking about a twenty-five million ton uh, global usage. 
So could you know 50 percent magnitude deficit is 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 insane. However, if you have that view, but you're wrong about the next 12 to 18 months and the copper market is doing what it's doing now, which is basically pricing in a balanced market, if not maybe a supply, uh, you know, over overshoot over the months, like you can get killed. And so that's the other thing about these commodities is like, you can have this view far into the future. And like, I have this view far into the future, but I had to, I had to look myself in the mirror and say like, Hey man, like what matters is over the next 12 to 18 months and net zero is not really happening. Like you can look at offshore wind, you can look at ice bands that are, that are, you know, they're rolling them out another five years. Like mm -hmm. once you adjust these models, like all of a sudden that 50% deficit becomes, you know, five to 10. And then at that point, all it takes is China demand to tick down or a global recession to yeah. kind of scare people where all, and then, and then that, and then that deficit disappears. And so, um, you know, that's well, the, I mean, go ahead. And so, so like you're saying, I mean, I think what's interesting about these manpower businesses and these service businesses is it, it's they're much more resilient, I think, because exactly. they constantly need these things. And exactly. it's not the other aspect to it is that is that if you look at where what what if so these minerals in some of these emerging countries, right? I mean, what these politicians seem to be going after are these windfall profits, right? These profits where all of a sudden, you know, copper goes doubles. And these mining companies are getting double or no, it's gonna be more than double because the operational leverage are getting these giant profits so if you look at the way the governments even guys like the uk putting you know excess profits on these things they're going after the commodity oh, yep. yep but they're not going after the service guys there's a number of reasons i think the big reason for that is the service guys employ a lot of people yep. and they're not making excess margins it's not so they're actually employing people which i think the government likes so i think these businesses have a little bit of some interesting properties associated with them that make the, they make them more resilient than let's say some of these bigger these bigger mining companies right. that are relying on foreign governments to basically for their concessions and the other stuff that they that they have in terms of being able to mine in those areas. Yeah. Yep. No, it's I mean it's like it's something that I want to I want to write about more, dig into more and I think the companies that were mentioned in this podcast are are great starting points for anyone that wants to explore this area as well, the labor and the services aspect of 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 mining. So, uh Keith, as we as we wrap up here, again, thanks so much for coming on. I know it's been 3 years. It feels like it's it feels like it kind of went by really quickly, but uh you know, where can where can people go to find out more about you and 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 Bonhoeffer Capital? Yeah, so we've, we've got a website, bonhoeffercapital.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, on uh, Bonhoeffer underscore KDS. And those are probably the, the, two, the two best places that you can, that you can find, find me and, and our firm. Awesome. And then the last question that I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? All right. So I've, I've got, you know, I listen to the, the the past podcast, and I the name the the guy that's the the fun is named after is um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I, I, another person I think that would be very interesting, and he's actually alive today, is a guy named Tom Holland. He he basically is a historian, and he's written this great book called Dominion. And some of the things we talked about on the last podcast of how did free enterprise sort of start up in the Netherlands and the UK and that kind of stuff. I think a lot of that in reading Tom Holland's book and his stuff really goes back to the the idea which was revolutionary, which is what his whole book is about. Um, the revolutionary idea of 
you know, we're all created in the image of God and we're equal. And the whole idea of human rights and where did that come from? And that and that and that allows for free enterprise to happen because free enterprise isn't going to happen if you think that you're superior to someone else. Why would you want to trade or why would you want to share in anything if there if that idea, that basic concept was not part of people's thinking? And I think if you look at the governments and the and the, the folks that have been influenced by that idea. It's really been a very powerful idea and really created a huge differentiator versus the way the world used to be. The way the world used to be was you had the ins, the guy, even the Romans and the Greeks, you had the people that were the elites, and then you had everybody else. And you were, you were a slave and you could you consider property, no matter who you were, if you were a slave. And, and that's, that's sort of the way the world was. But the idea of, hey, you know, people are the Jay Christian that you were all created in the image of God. Therefore, that idea doesn't make any sense. Therefore, it's and it totally, uh, totally turned the whole world around. I mean, Tom in his book Dominion has a really great his series of stories that sort of describes what that is, but it provides a really interesting. So, I mean, I think a discussion with him just about you know just that, and then also specifically the the economic and the impact of the stock market and the way we think about things today, I think just the legacy of that would be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to order a couple books from him. Uh, when you said Tom Holland, I thought of the British actor uh, who plays Spider-Man. So that tells you. Well, but, but he, he actually has a very entertaining podcast and it's called the okay. history. It's very good. Him and another, another British historian, they sort of, they sort of banter back and forth and have fun with it. And they make they make history fun, which I think is the way it really should be, because history is just just so many fascinating stories that have happened in the past. Yeah. And you know, it just you, you don't need, you know, it's it, there's just so much stuff that's that happened in real life that's just very interesting and fascinating. That's really uh really been sort of a, a thing that I've sort of been spending a lot of time lately thinking about and just reading about, and it's been it's been really fun. Awesome. Well, Keith, thanks so much for doing this again. Best of luck the rest of the year at Bonhoeffer and look forward to having you on again. All right. Great. Thanks a lot. Nice talking with you, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.